So we're starting a new, new, uh, new preaching schedule today. First Sunday of every month, we're going to be preaching in the Psalms, doing a shorter meditation in the Psalms. And today we're going to start out at the very beginning with Psalm number one. So if you would please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Uh, this is uh, Psalm number one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields in its, fr- its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. When I was in China a couple weeks ago, I uh, went to this shopping center and I wanted to bring my kids back a really great toy, something that... Uh, that I could get there for less money that I would never be able to afford in the United States for them. And so I found in this toy store, I found this, this drone, uh, a remote-controlled drone. It was like 40 bucks, and I was like, yes, score. So I bought this thing thinking that I was going to win the Dad of the Year Award bringing home a drone for my kids that they would be able to remote fly in the house and outside. Uh, and I got it home. I was super excited to put it all together for the kids. And I opened the box. And wouldn't you know it, the instructions were all in Chinese. So uh, at first I, I got a little discouraged. But I went to the internet. And I decided to try to find uh, this instructions in English for the same drone by the same manufacturer. And at first I couldn't find it. I was, found similar drones and, and, or from the same manufacturer but different companies. And they weren't quite right. They were getting frustrated. The kids were realizing that... Maybe dad wasn't going to put the drone together uh, after all, and you could see their countenance just fell, and they sat on the floor. And then finally, uh, I sat down on the couch just frustrated, and I literally just scoffed at this Chinese company for for the absurdity of giving me instructions in Chinese and blamed them for the whole thing. Finally, I ended up, I found the right, I found the instructions, found them in English that matched up from the manufacturer, uh, and I was able to put the drone together, and uh, I was happy, my kids were happy, the house filled with sounds of giggle and laughter and joy, Uh, our countenance lifted, and I sat on the couch in a sense of deep fulfillment and happiness and purpose. And if we were a Hebrew family, one might be able to say that I was blessed. Because that's really what blessed means in this psalm and in Hebrew. Blessed means this, it's a bigger word uh, than just happy. It's a deep sense of completion, fulfillment, and purpose. It's what we usually mean when we use the word happy. Uh, But it's a deep sense of that. And, and, And the desire to be happy is probably the most foundational goal of every one of us. If you boiled everything that we do down to the lowest common denominator, we would ultimately say, well, I do that because I want to be happy or I desire uh, to have happiness in my life. And yet, a lot of times, happiness 
eludes us. Uh, well, this psalm, Psalm 1, is all about how to be happy. And here's the thing. Here's the problem. Life is infinitely more complex than putting together a drone. Infinitely more complex. Way more parts and pieces. And yet, everyone and their mom is trying to sell us a set of instructions for life. And oftentimes we buy into those sets of instructions because from our own mindset, they may seem quite reasonable. But... uh, the thing is, there's only one set of instructions that comes from the manufacturer, and that's the Bible. And so that's what this psalm is really all about. The, the psalm, the, being the first psalm in the Psalter, it's a, it's a summary, it's almost a, a, a condensed version of all the wisdom of God that's laid out in all the psalms and all the wisdom literature. Uh, and in the, in the simplest sense, when we mean, when we say Torah or law, from verse 2 in this psalm, in the simplest sense, what it really means is, is, is God's the instructions about how life works best from the manufacturer. Uh, and, so, and then by following those, we naturally align ourselves with the way the world really is, and if we ignore them, we align ourselves with shadow and the way the world is not. And so today we're going to talk about, in this psalm, we're going to talk about how to be happy. And the first rule that God gives us in this psalm about how to be happy is don't follow the wrong instructions. <laughs> to not follow the wrong instructions. There's, a, uh, there's, a rewa- there's an award that the uh, organization every year gives out called the Darwin Award. Maybe you've all heard of it. <laughs> it's the award that they give to who, that someone who does the dumbest thing that gets them killed that year. And it's the Darwin Award because in their evolutionary thought... They're, they're, they're commending that person for erasing their gene pool, their genes from the gene pool, and thus the Darwin Award. This, this year, one of the winners was a guy who pulled off to the side of the highway to relieve himself and saw a wounded bear on the side of the road. His friend got back in the car. He decided that it would be a good idea to take a selfie with the wounded bear, and the rest is history. And the story and the Darwin Awards tell us that sometimes success in life uh, is a largely a matter of what you don't do versus what you do do. And, and, and interestingly, this psalm starts off by telling us the happy man will avoid certain things. Let's get, look at verse 1. This is all stuff not to do. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Walking, standing, sitting. I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb because my very favorite commentator on the Psalms, a guy named Peter Craigie, uh, who is so full of rich insight into the first 50 Psalms especially, he says he doesn't see any progression of events in here. But I can't help but see some progression in this description of listening and then standing and then sitting like an ultimate destination where you start. And it starts with... Uh, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, which basically it's Hebrew meaning uh, don't listen to bad advice. Don't listen to the counsel of the wicked or you won't be happy. 
There's an interesting fact. At the time of the writing of the Declaration of Independence, the word happiness culturally meant the, res- the state that resulted from the pursuit of cultivating virtue in your life. That's how everybody understood it. So, um, what they went in the Constitution, for example, and when it says the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, it meant the pursuit, pursuit of life and of liberty and of the freedom to pursue a life of cultivating virtue. However, do we, we don't read it like that anymore. Why? Because the word has changed in our understanding under a capitalist society and that's been infected with consumerism where we have turned everything into a commodity, including sex, marriage, friendships, just about everything except our kids, uh, now happiness has a consumerist value. It means how much stuff you can get, how much stuff you can stack up, or how, much thi- how many things you can consume to give you experiences and pleasure in life. Now because of that, why am I telling you that story? Because of that, there the world around us is now, is now uh, plastered with in- sets of instructions about how to be happy in life based on those consumerist values. And unfortunately, because the church exists in that bigger bubble, uh, that same sense of consumerist values of happiness filters into the church and infects us and how we think and how we, uh, how we go about pursuing happiness. There's uh, all sorts of false ideas. I mean, probably the biggest one we all know about, we've all heard about, is the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. Um, where people have mistaken the understanding of God's blessings and God's material blessings and giftings uh, as what brings happiness. And so then they pursue those things. And when God doesn't come through with them, it ends up in spiritual crisis and despair and unhappiness. Um, now, most of our churches aren't just full-on prosperity gospel churches, and yet there's that that vibe in it, like a soft prosperity gospel still sinks into our churches, and we believe that God's favor or God's disfavor on our lives is really, we can measure that or gauge it based on what kind of material blessing we have or how prosperous we are financially or how prosperous we are in our careers and in our successes um, and, and because of that because of that soft prosperity materialist prosperity gospel that is filtered into the church where we've kind of been we've, our minds have been reset into thinking that happiness is the result of uh, what we can, what we can experience, or how much pleasure we can have, or what we, uh, what we can have, rather than our connection to God and His nourishing Spirit. There are all kinds of other prosperity gospels that are materializing in the churches. Prosperity gospels that tell us that uh, whatever our sense of subjective fulfillment that we must have to be happy is, that those things are blessings. Uh, and that's a dangerous thing. It's a super dangerous thing. The fallout uh, is that now we have a church that is full of these ideas of prosperity that have that are very different from what the Bible talks about. 
And the second thing, now this, this talks about, how do we know if we've been infected or if we've bought into some of these softer prosperity gospels or promises of, of uh, material blessing or other blessings is we find ourselves in dangerous situations, which is walking uh, in the way of what the, what, the, what the psalm says, walking in the way of sinners. And I love, I, I think it's important that it says, it says standing in the path of sinners. Not yet walking down the path, but standing there. There's a guy named Dallas Willard, philosopher, used to be a philosopher from UCLA, also a Christian. Uh, and he, he wrote this, he wrote a, a book, and in this book he presented this idea to me that's always kind of haunted me, and that is, he says, most often, not always, most often what we, we do, uh, what we believe informs what we do, or what we do is controlled by what we really believe. Now that can be, that's not always the fact, because sometimes a great amount of fear can cause us to act contrary to what we truly believe. That can happen in real life. But what he's saying most often is what we perceive to be the good is how we'll act in real life. What we really believe is our good and our salvation is how we'll act in real life. And so the way to figure out or ask yourself or ask ourselves, have we bought into any of these prosperity gospels is to ask yourself, where are we standing? What gospel are we listening to? What do we really believe is going to bring us happiness in life? Is it our career? Is it our success? Is it our relationship? Is it being fulfilled sexually in a certain way or having a, you know, a certain relationship or any of these other things outside of relationship with God? If we find ourselves standing there, not maybe even yet walking down that path, but believing that that's where our prosperity and happiness is, that's dangerous. And the final part of that progression is sitting in the seat of scoffers, which really means, I think, the better way, a good way to express that would be blaming God for, blaming God for the bad results. Uh, the scoffer in this progression is presented as the pinnacle of wickedness. Why? Because he's basically, he sat down and blamed God for the poor results. He's, and, 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 and he's become resistant to truth. There's a certain uh, form of, of, a, of, a, of an infection called MRSA. That's in, in, it's resistant to antibiotics. And once it sets into a wound, it's really hard to treat. And scoffers are presented kind of in that same way in the Bible. They, are, they have become angry at God, resistant to truth, uh, and also in that, in that sense, then they become people who encourage others to fall into the same pit of mistrusting God, being angry at God, uh, and blaming God for the bad results of listening to false gospels and acting in contrary to wisdom of the Bible. And, man, that's awful. I mean, it's awful to spell it out like that, but that's what it's talking about. And in this psalm, the end of that, the end of that progression, it says, is the wicked are like chaff. What is chaff? Chaff is, chaff is the outer husk of the grain. And when they would, when they would harvest the grain... You would throw the grain up in the air and the, the outer, the outer, um, the 
outer cover of the grain would separate because it was light. It was, it was without substance. It was dry. Uh, it was easily able by, to be picked up and just driven off and scattered by the wind. And so it's a picture that living life according to the bad advice of false gospels ends in, in, in being without substance, in being dry. And here's the thing, the end, when it says the end is perishing, it's really, it's not talking in the sense of, it's not speaking in the sense of this is punishment, it's saying this is just the natural outcome. The natural outcome of that kind of life is that it results in perishing. That's just what must happen if we align ourselves with shadow, if we align ourselves with way, the way the universe is not. And here, here's, the, here's the important part. What's behind that progression? What trips us up and gets us into that mindset? It's, it's the fact that it's when we place our happiness as the primary and foundational value of our lives versus holiness. And by holiness, I don't mean uh, act good so that God would love you. I mean learning uh, and, and abiding by God's word, by abiding by that instruction that God has given us for the flourishing of life. And here's why. If, we, if, we, if our basic foundational value in life is to be happy, uh, and we set the goals and we set the standards for what creates that happiness, we're super susceptible to be drawn in by the myriad false gospels out in the world and in the church, uh, and then we unwittedly follow the wrong instructions, we find ourselves on the wrong path, and we sit frustrated and discouraged, blaming God and being upset because we ended up uh, in that plight, which is the big danger of the prosperity gospels in the church. However, if we make decisions based on objective holiness, what does the wisdom of God say I should do in this? What does the wisdom of God say the created order is really like, then we align ourselves with the way things are and that results over time in a sense of fulfillment. So how do we, as you may ask, how do we get better at that? How do we even learn how to make decisions based on created order and the universe as it is? And the answer is what the happy man does. And he does one thing. The happy man meditates on the manufacturer's instructions. Uh, We know, you know that a steady diet of anything will produce a certain result. If we have a steady diet of processed, sugary foods, junk foods, it's going to produce a certain result and it's also going to increase our appetite for that thing. We also know the same is true in the other way. If we have a healthy diet, that's going to produce a certain result, health in our, in our bodies, and it's going to also increase our appetite for healthy food. Uh, listen to Psalm, look at, listen to verse 2. The happy man, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so what does God say we should be feeding ourselves a steady diet of? law. Now right there all of our red flags go go up, right? Because we're 
Christ-centered church. We believe in, we believe in the gospel uh, as, the, as the only source and foundation of our hope that Jesus has completed and fulfilled the law for us. So uh, our immediate thought is, okay, we're going to, you know, when we read that, when you read that psalm, if you don't know what it means, you're you could be tempted to think, oh, I must meditate day and night on what I have to do to be pleasing to God so he'll accept me, but that's not what it means. Remember, Torah, in its basic sense, it's talking about, it means the manufacturer's instructions for the prosperous life. That's why the wise person loves it, because the wise person understands what it means. It's not just statutes and, 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 and law, it's, it's the whole tenor of the Bible, the wisdom that God's given us in it that teaches us how to flourish in life. Uh, and it, it does please God when we do that. But the reason it pleases God is because it blesses us and God loves us to be blessed. So here's what it says. It says meditate. We're supposed to meditate on the word of God. What does that even mean? It's hard for us to grasp that maybe because the culture we're in is so influenced by Eastern meditation, which is the emptying of the mind, that it might be hard for us to understand the Christian understanding of meditation, which is to, it's not to empty our mind of thought, it is to fill our minds with the thoughts of God and the wisdom and knowledge of God. And we do that by, um, by studying the Bible. Maybe there's a, here's a, here is probably the best description that I heard of it. I heard this in uh, Tim Keller in a sermon, said that meditating is, is responsive prayer, meaning res- responsive prayer versus preemptive prayer. Preemptive prayer meaning, uh, like we just go, we go straight to God, and this is not a bad thing at all. We go straight to God, and off the top of our heads, we like lay out all the things I need. God, please help me do this. God, please give me that. God, please bless so-and-so. Nothing wrong with that, but meditating is responsive prayer. It's reading slow reading through the Bible and looking in it to see what are the warnings here and praying for God's forgiveness and for strength, seeing the promises in there and God, praying and asking God to fulfill those promises in our lives and seeing what the encouragements are in the text and responding to God and praying to him, asking him to encourage us and to strengthen us in all of those ways that he speaks about in the Bible and then thinking about those things through the course of the day and just running them through your minds and filling God, your, your, your mind with the thoughts of God uh, and pushing out your own thoughts. Nietzsche likes to say this is a quote from uh, the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. The big problem is, is we listen to ourselves too much when we should be talking to ourselves. And what we should be saying to ourselves is what God says is true about us, that we are redeemed, that we have been saved, that we do possess the righteousness of Christ, that we do stand right now before God as beloved children. When God looks at us, he doesn't see a single dirty thing. He sees us as beautiful, uh, redeemed creations. He's just pouring his love out on, on top of us. And when we meditate on that, who we are, totally changes. It changes everything. That's like a one good example of what that med- what meditating means, meditating what the Bible says God says we are rather than what our brains try to tell us we are or what the world tries to tell us we are. And we can do that in community like we're doing right now. As the word is being preached and we're all thinking about these things and the rest of the day, 
Lord willing, we'll be meditating on these things throughout the day and then also in, throughout the week, Lord willing, as we go to our community groups and we talk about this again, we're sinking it a little deeper into our hearts and meditating on God's word again. And just these little, these little pieces put together throughout the work is what, throughout the week is really what he's talking about, just calm, meditating day and night on what God says is true and not what we think is true, what the world thinks is true, what the devil wants to convince us is true. And just in the same way that the natural result of the other is to become dry and chaff, the just natural result, it's not a reward from God, it's just the natural result is flourishing. The natural result is blessedness, happiness. Really it says, he prospers in all he does. But what does that mean? Biblically, what does it mean to prosper? Uh, I, think, I think coming to understanding what the Bible means here and elsewhere when it talks about prospering is a transformative idea. It's a transformative idea that will transform how we live and, re- and, and, and respond to God. Um, that... Because it says prospers, many people have taken that out of context, it means, and it says, see, there you go. If we do this, meditate on God's word, or do our Bible studies, or do our devotion time, or do this, or do that, then God will reward us by giving us the material things our hearts desire. Cash us out. Money, wealth, power, sexual fulfillment, relationship, whatever our minds, whatever our subjective desires of happiness are, because I've done this, God has to do this for me, and the end result of that is disaster. Because then you have a not you start out with a crisis of poverty. Now you have a crisis of poverty and spiritual crisis because God didn't do what you've been taught that He's supposed to do. But that's not what it means. Listen, listen. The difference between that false understanding of prosperity and the biblical idea of prosperity is what we are trusting and what we're relying on. Are we relying on the seasons or are we we relying on the roots and the river that the roots, that that supports the roots? You know, if if you go through Mission Valley, there's like a green belt of plants that are in the middle of the valley, always there, no matter what the weather's like, whether it's raining, whether it's drought, there's a green belt of plants going right through Mission Valley. Why? Because those plants are planted right next to a river. They don't need rain. They don't need seasons. They don't need external fertilizer. They don't need anything from the outside because their roots are connected to the river and the soil, the nourishing soil that the river brings. And so no matter what the season of life is, they are being nourished. And that's what this is talking about, the tree. It goes through its seasons but it's not relying on the seasons. It's not relying on the rain or the fertilizer or the external events for happiness. And when you, when you do that, the rain may not come. The weather may go bad. There may not be any fertilizer. There may not be the rewards you want and you end up a scoffer. But if you rely on the roots, the roots reach the nourishment of the river no matter what. And the tree is not always producing fruit. It's producing fruit in its season, which tells us 
There are different seasons in life. And, by the way, God is the one in charge of those seasons, not us. Sometimes we'll be bearing fruit. Sometimes we won't. Sometimes there'll be real seasons of sadness that we're going through. But God is with us, and we know he's with us because why? It says, the leaf never withers. Maybe you're saying, I need to have fruit right now. And God's saying, no, you need to build endurance right now. But as we're doing that, as we're building, the leaf will be green, full of nourishment, cared for, protected. The leaf will never wither, no matter what kind of weather of life is happening, because our roots are connected to the river of the Spirit, through our union with Christ. And that's the most important part. The third part of this whole thing is that all of this happens, all of this is even made possible because we are in union with Christ. And that's the deeper, the deeper theology and the deeper, more beautiful theology of this psalm. It really speaks of, if you look at you know, the, the, the actual grammar It doesn't say blessed is a man or blessed are men and women. It says blessed is the man. It's talking about a specific man. It's really talking about two men. Adam in the garden who really had the ability and was able uh, to, to, to meditate on God's law day and night and to be blessed in it. But he lost it. He lost it by the first piece of bad advice in history. Who can tell me what that is? You will not surely die. You will not surely die. God is jealous. God is vindictive. God is mean. God is angry. He is trying to withhold good from you. And you have the power in yourself to know what's right and wrong and good and evil. And you, if you exercise that, you can be just like God. And that's what God's afraid of. And what happened? Flourishing? Disaster. Disaster. And it would have stayed disaster forever. In our natural state, we would be unable to hear the truth about God. We would be completely and totally susceptible to always running through a series of bad instructions and bad advice because in our corrupted heart we would have corrupted ideas of what was good and we would always seek the instructions for that and walk in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers and there would be no hope for us. However, the second Adam, Jesus, came and won for us uh, the salvation of our sins, won for us the righteousness of his life so that we are now, what God thinks about us is uh, that we are beloved But he also put us in touch with his spirit and gave us minds to comprehend and the ability to seek him and to receive blessedness from him. How do we know that? Where does it say that in the text? Listen, the tree, the tree. It says the tree, when it says it's planted, what does it say? It says that blessed, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. The real word, it's transplanted. It's a picture of a tree that was like yanked up from the dry and awesome, dry, dusty wadi in the back country of, of Israel. 
it pulled out of the desert of bad advice and planted, replanted, transplanted into and connected to the nourishing soil and the river of the Spirit of God where it is receiving through the roots everything it needs for life. And we too have been pulled out of the, the dry desert of all the bad ideas in the world and put and replanted, transplanted in the soil of the Spirit in our union with Jesus. And the last thing is, and also in line with that, is it says that we delight. We delight in the law of God. Now this is, this is what I think, this is what I, this is, what I'm most excited about, what I think is the most beautiful part of this whole passage, and that, and that what that means is, what that, here, here, here's some definitions of delight and what that means. Delight means, in the psalm, it talks about delight being um, that the thing, the law of God, uh, its inherent beauty is so obvious to us that we, are, that, that, that we desire it. We want, to, we, want to, we want to know more about it. Um, that it, we are easily attracted to, to God's law, to his instruction, to Torah, to what God says is true about us in the world because we are able to see its beauty. And why is that important? Why is that, why is that, why is that beautiful? It's because, because of this. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul says to the Romans, he says, you, assuring them of their salvation, he's saying, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he goes right on to talk about some other stuff. He never gives like a definition of what that even means. He assumes they all understand it or they all know it. And the clue to what Paul means by that is back in Romans 7, chapter 22. He throws off this comment where he says in the middle of his lamenting that he's not able to keep the law as he would like. He's not able to follow God's instructions for life in the way that he knows is good and right and beautiful, but in his innermost heart, he delights in the law of God. He, he delights in it. He sees its inherent beauty. He sees its, uh, its wonder and he is attracted to it. He wants to do that even though the flesh is warring against him. And that delight in the law of God, I think, is what he's talking about when he says, if the Spirit dwells in you. In other words, how do we know God's Spirit is in us? It's because we delight in God's law. Even if we're not able to pull it off, we still see it. We recognize it as beautiful and we want to do it. And what I'm trying to, this is what I'm trying to say. That delight in God's law is a gift. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus has given us because outside of that, outside of being in Jesus, outside of being given that new heart that's able to delight in the things of God, we would be without hope. We would be running to one foolish thing after another with, with, with no hope and just discouragement and despair our whole lives. But he's given us this gift. He's changed our hearts, given us the ability, given us that delight in his law that we then are called to cultivate. That's what Paul means when he says, work out 
the salvation that is in you, not work for it, work out what God's ever given you. Why? Because it is God's good pleasure to do and to will that which he has given us, which gives us hope. God is working in us and through us to bring out our delight in his law. And as we delight in it more, uh, we see it's more beautiful. We're able to live in it, and it blesses us. It gives us blessing. So maybe you hear that and you're like, okay, but, but I don't delight. I don't delight in love, God. In fact, it's really hard. Sometimes it's hard to even pray for five minutes or get so discouraged and I don't even know what to do. I think everybody's like that. I'm like that. And the encouragement for me and for everyone is, is the picture of the tree. It's also a tree. It doesn't just grow a piece of fruit straight up out of the ground. It's talking about a, a process of years. The tree is planted in the nourishing soil. Years the, the roots are stra- straining towards the river of God's nourishment and at first it comes out, it's a little, little, little bud. And then it comes in, it's a little sapling. You know, it's a lot of days I feel like a little weak sapling flopping around in the wind. But God's promise on that is he is growing us. He is growing those, these little saplings into, one commentator said, into sequoias of God, into trees of God. There's a, a psalm that talks about that too. God is growing us into trees that, over the course of time, will then come into seasons and begin to produce fruit. And so if you're discouraged, it's the little things, it's the little everyday things that, that, that build towards that end that we work out our salvation in. It's coming to church regular, receiving the Lord's Supper, praying together, praying on our own, going to community groups, going to Bible study, going to Sunday school, learning the deep things of God and letting those things marinate in our hearts and souls and over the course of years those little pieces of meditation throughout our weeks ends up in God's promise that we will be trees producing fruit nourished solely by the river of his spirit no matter what the weather of life may be. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Thank you that he has saved us. Thank you that he's made all this possible. Without him, we would have nothing, Lord. We're so grateful for our salvation that we want to honor you by listening to what you say is true. And then in listening to it, to put it into practice as an act of worship towards your goodness, Lord. And we know that you promise us that you will not be a debtor to your people. So the more we try to honor you, the more you will bless us. So we pray, Lord, that our love for Jesus and our knowledge of his sacrifice for us would be so great in our understanding that we would want to honor you by learning what you said is true about the the world you have created and listening and meditating and immersing ourselves in your word so that we can grow in our ability to act 
in, in accordance with reality. And we pray that you would bless us, Lord, and so we would also be a blessing to others. And people would see the fruit in our congregation and in our lives and also see our sin and how we are forgiven uh, so that we might give people hope, Lord. In a world of bad advice and false instructions, we pray that you would let us give people hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.